WVUD and UD Information Technologies present Campus Voices, conversations with University of Delaware faculty, staff, and students about their teaching, research, service projects, and other interests. To introduce today's guest, here's your host, Richard Gordon, manager of the IT Communication Group at the University of Delaware. Hello, everybody, and here everything is working properly. We've got Professor David Wilson from the Political Science and International Relations Department with us live in the studio. Hello, David. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Good. On the phone, we've got with us Professor Lindsay, Lindsay Hoffman from the Department of Communication. Are you there, Lindsay? I am here. It's nice to be with you. Uh, also joining us today from the Communication Department as our newsreader is Sarah Lazar. Um, a senior communication major from Manlapan, New Jersey. Is that right? Manalapan, actually. Okay. It's a hard word to, to pronounce. All right. So, Sarah, what's the latest on the presidential results? Yeah. President Obama is in the lead with 303 electoral votes, while Romney has 206. Results in Florida are still too close to call. Obama still leads with the popular vote with 60,567,122 votes, and Romney now has 57,744,506. So now we just wanted to talk about, you now was this election, um, considering that you know President Obama has won re-election, the Senate and the House still maintains their um, respective majorities, um, has this really been a status quo election? David, no, what do you think? Not by any means. Um, because the president was re- re-elected, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that we're just holding with the status quo because you had a major uh, shellacking, so to speak, in 2010. And so there were, there were many arguments that the country was moving in a completely different direction. They wanted a more conservative political culture. They wanted a more uh, restrained government, taking less action. And what this says is that over the past two years, the American public have, have been dissuaded from that approach. And they're now saying that uh, President Obama is the right person to lead the country. The Senate is the right um, uh, branch uh, within the the Congress to make big decisions. And I think uh, we're going to see a different path moving forward. Lindsay, what do you think? Right. Well, I mean, I suppose if if your definition of status quo is that it's the same as it was before the election, I guess that counts. But I don't think that, um, you know, I I think the American people were – Active in, in making a choice to uh, maintain the supposed status quo. I don't know if I would call it that, though. I mean, I think it's these things naturally shift and change every two to four years. So um, if it stays the same, that's in my mind still somewhat of a change of what, uh, particularly what pundits would have expected. Another another issue that um, I was noticing was that um, I heard the CBS News report that nine first-term Tea Party Republicans were voted out of Congress. And, Sarah, I think you've got some some other Tea Party-related data for us. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, out of 16 Senate candidates that were endorsed by the Tea Party, um, only four won uh, this past Tuesday. So um, I felt that these results are definitely, and I know a lot of, um, there's been a lot of talk about how the Republicans are now having to take a second look at their party's approach and see really where, um, you know, where the different areas they can target now because, the, unfortunately, their views aren't uh, apparently what the Americans are wanting now. So the Senate races in Missouri and Indiana showed just how the Tea Party's extremism may not be uh, beneficial to the GOP. 
Republican Missouri candidate Todd Akin made his comments um, a couple months ago about pregnancies resulting from legitimate rape, and while Republican can, uh, Indiana candidate Richard Murdoch said pregnancies resulting from rape are because God intended them to happen, um, these extremists, uh, I guess, were not, you know, in favor with the, the Americans, and neither candidate won their Senate seat. However, in both those states, uh, Romney won those in the presidential race. So it's an interesting thing to look at and see really how the Tea Party is going and where we think it's going to go in the future. So, Lindsay, uh, we'll let you start. I mean, do you think that the, some of the results indicate that the Tea Party may be on its way out? Is the Tea Party over? Is this Have we entered a, an age where uh, some of the partisanship might start going down? Oh, gosh, I don't think so, no. Um, I mean, I, I do think that, like I said, we're experiencing some natural shifts to and from uh, the center. Um, I think that what we heard from voters this time around is that they do want uh, a somewhat more moderate approach to some of these solutions, uh, as opposed to 2010 when we saw uh, Tea Party um, supporters really wanting to take a more conservative uh, approach to government. So I think it's just um, it's it's. Not atypical, I think, for a midterm to have somewhat um, maybe more uh, polarizing results. Uh, when it comes to the general election, we have far more people getting involved in voting. So I don't think it's all that surprising, but I don't think it means it's the end of partisan politics by any means. So, David, do you believe what Romney and Obama and Boehner and Reid have been saying about, oh, we all have to work together? Sure. There's no doubt that the American public expect uh, parties to work together. It doesn't mean that the extremes of the party want them to work together. You've already seen folks like Michael Moore coming out, telling the president not to compromise. You've seen uh, the media pretty much move to a narrative of mandates. And so the mandate mantra uh, presumes that some group has more uh, advantage over another one in getting their policies across. And so I think you can think about the Tea Party not as a political party, but as a political idea. They don't, they're not a formal party. People don't register necessarily as Tea Party members. They're more of an interest group. And they remind me of the Christian coalition of the, the late 1980s, mid-1990s. They kind of came across as something new and interesting that people can buy into, and then it went away. You pretty much don't know much about the Christian coalition anymore. That name is kind of absent. And that's because it wasn't a legitimate uh, sort of political movement that could be insti institutionalized. The parties are institutionalized, and that's why uh, you've seen the Republican Party move more away from the Tea Party. Now, you didn't see Mitt Romney running as a Tea Party candidate. If he were running in 2010, he likely would have. And, in fact, Joe Walsh, who was a pretty much the leader of the Tea Party movement in the House, he lost his election. So there were other members who were strong members of the Tea Party that actually won. Alan West lost, but uh, Michelle Bachman, who is, uh, quote-unquote, the chair of the Tea Party caucus in the house she actually won her election by a narrow margin but she still won okay so it, it sounds like it's sort of a, a mixed thing i like your your analogy to the to the christian coalition i mean mm -hmm. an, an interest group because one of the things i'm curious about and and lindsay i don't know if you'd like to comment on this first is is there much of a chance that the tea party will try and become a third party and, and like work at the grassroots level and, and with state legislatures um you know, I, I can't speak too much to the, the Tea Party. I haven't been doing uh, research on them, but maybe perhaps David can chip in. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason why the Tea Party was successful is because they targeted uh, congressional districts. They didn't win the Senate last year. In fact, they didn't, they didn't defeat the leader of the Senate, who was a prime target. Of course, they didn't also defeat uh, Nancy Pelosi, who they were after. 
the Tea Party is a local uh, kind of movement. It's not a national movement. It has a, natu- a national interest. And so you've seen a lot of, of, of their politics on television. Uh, but it is not a national movement. It's focused specifically on local-level politics, but national issues. And that was an excellent strategy uh, by some who were former Republicans to, to put that out there so that they could win the uh, lower house, which is in charge of the budget, which is in charge of uh, initiating a lot of legislation. And also they won a lot of uh, state legislatures, which is in charge of uh, how you manage federal dollars coming into the state. So as a strategy, the Tea Party movement was great at the local level, and you'll probably continue to see some of that ideology operate at local levels. And, w- and when redistricting happened, it solidified kind of some of those bases uh, in mostly the rural states, mostly the middle part of the country, but on the eastern eastern states, it's kind of been rejected. We can pretty much make that assumption now. Lindsay, how would you characterize Obama's media strategy? I mean, it, it seemed that he he was a little bit... I don't want to say cynical, but it seemed like he was really going after um, specific parts of his coalition, wasn't he? Well, I mean, both of them were. I mean, this is this. If I would label this election as anything, it would be the election where uh, micro-targeting became the number one uh, campaign strategy. So both both campaigns were were actively appearing on select shows. Uh, Obama appeared on. Certain radio programs, uh, comedy programs, entertainment programs. Romney chose to appear on other types of programs. Um, I don't necessarily think it's, it's a cynical approach. I think it's a very strategic approach in terms of how they're managing media. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I study is how campaigns and citizens use technology. And this, um, as in 08, Obama very strategically, his campaign very strategically used uh technology and new new communication tools. Most of it was really occurring behind the scenes. Um, they were the Obama campaign had something called Dashboard, which linked uh, all the data that voters that uh, volunteers were getting on the ground to data that were at headquarters. And this just made for an extremely efficient and streamlined canvassing machine. And I think that um, it truly impacted the election because they were they were that much more efficient in getting uh, getting out the vote effort. So it, it's what you're saying is that there was a lot of the kind of the micro work that you can do with social media was helping both sides um, get out different portions of their voter population. I, I think so, but I do think that the Obama campaign was was definitely using more strategy uh, than the Romney campaign. They. They had the advantage coming in with all of the data they collected in, in 2008, and they had maintained contact with a lot of these email addresses that they'd collected then. In 2012, uh, so for example, I follow both of the candidates on Twitter and on Facebook, and uh, I was really amazed at the accuracy with which the Obama campaign could appeal to me. On the last couple of days, they were actually giving me notifications of friends of mine who lived in Ohio, specifically naming them and saying, remind Mike to go vote because Ohio is an important state. So, I mean, that kind of precision is, um, is, is remarkable in that people really notice it and pay attention. And the fact that um, it, it, I think it really proved to be effective, it suggests that we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. Watching the election results on Tuesday night, um, I forgot whether it was CBS or NBC that were talking about um, some of Obama's media buys. And David, I, I think he might be the very first president who ever 
aired an ad totally in Spanish with himself being the voice speaking in Spanish. And this was um, an ad that he aired in one of the key battleground states, Colorado. Yeah. It was pretty remarkable because it was also uh, uh, spread virally online, right? So he was the first presidential uh, candidate of a major party to actually do this. And it sent a direct signal that he's committed through his actions to learn Spanish, to be able to put himself out there and actually uh, go through that process of saying, look, I'm going to do this. It may not, so- may not sound perfect, uh, but it sounded pretty good. And it was completely in Spanish. And, and it also had translation at the bottom. So if you didn't speak Spanish, you could see what he was saying and telling to the, the Spanish uh, electorate. So, um, so it was pretty effective, I think. Uh, when, you, when you look at the exit poll numbers, we see that Latinos overwhelmingly voted for Obama 71% to 27%. And even with some error around that, that's still a pretty strong consensus of Hispanic support. And I think uh, the Hispanic vote was up to 10% of the total electorate now. So that's yeah. that's a, a pretty hefty margin in a, a the, large group. Well, the, you know, another thing that's, that's interesting about that is that uh, Hispanics make up roughly about 16% of the U.S. population. And when you when you get that 10 percent, uh, social scientists tend to think about okay, well, how are we actually measuring that? Because uh, if you're if you say you're Hispanic, then um, we pretty much say you're Hispanic. If you say you're Hispanic and you're African American, you're Hispanic. If you're Hispanic and you're white, you're Hispanic. So some of that might be due to the new ways in which we're actually measuring race. So we'll see an increased uh, proportion of people uh, who say they're Hispanic in voting. Uh, but that may just be uh, some measurement change. I think that Hispanic turnout was much higher now, and I think that they're a higher part of the electorate. So in other words, I'm arguing that number is probably an underestimate. Okay. I think another media strategy I heard that Obama did was he beat Mr. Romney by five weeks um, in terms of advertising on the Big Ten network. Mm -hmm. And you notice, I mean, the way the electoral votes turned out, um, Mr. Obama carried some of those key Midwestern states. Um, you know that would only be getting the advertisements during those football games on the Saturdays. It's a pretty good point. It, yeah. If I can jump in, please, please join um, us, Lindsay. Yeah, this isn't uh, this. While that may be true, and I think that it, it is an important strategy, this campaign, like I said, really wasn't about um, broadcasting, and it wasn't about. Uh, I mean, in some ways, airing advertisements on the Big Ten, um, uh, the networks in the Big Ten region is indicative of micro-targeting, but I think where we really saw the efficiency and the, um, the success was on the ground, and um, the fact that the campaign had created such a massive database of voter information that combines not just what party people are or who they voted for in a previous election, but they're able to combine those data. There are co- companies now that allow you to access lifestyle data, what magazines you subscribe to, what TV shows do you, you like? Uh, what sports you engage in? Um, so, I mean, when you're able to bring all these things together, uh, you know, how many children you have, or if you have children under the age of 18, this makes um, canvassing and phone banking that much more effective because people are able to really target their messages to those people. And at the same time, when they're at the, do- the door talking to voters, they can collect data about that person, about issues that they're interested in, record them on their device, and it goes back to headquarters. So, I mean, we're seeing, I think, the most massive data machine that, that we ever had before, and I think that's what really shifted the, the vote for Obama, particularly in those key battleground states. 
So it's that combination of data mining and then being able to act on the, how those different pieces of data interact, um, relate to each other. And Precisely. They, they were very, um, they were utilizing those data very effectively. We're talking with Lindsay Hoffman from the Communication Department, and she's on the telephone, and David Wilson from Political Science is here with us in the studio, and we're discussing Tuesday's election results. And also with us right now is Sarah Lazar. And, Sarah, we already started talking about the Hispanic vote. Why don't you share with us some of the other um, breakdowns and some of the demographics um, from this past presidential election? Yeah, sure. Um, Obama won um, the women's vote with 55%. Um, and as Professor Wilson said before, Hispanics with 71%. And he also won African Americans with 93%. Um, we, I, I saw that the Latino vote played a large role in many of the battleground states, which we were talking about before, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico. Um, and the president actually won their vote by percentages larger than the margin of victory, which is really interesting. And um, he also won the majority of young voters, um, those between 18 and 29. He won 60% of their vote. And um, Romney, on the other hand, won men and um, those with strong religious beliefs, I found he found um, he won men with 52% of their vote and 59% of those who attend religious services on a weekly basis. So it was really interesting to just really see where um, each candidate lied within the within the electorate. David, yeah, I mean here's some of the the interesting things about how you have to really look at data. So for example, the narrative that you've seen is that uh, Obama won the uh, the gender vote. Uh, he won women. He won youth. But if you look at, for example, the gender and you break it down by race, Mitt Romney won white women and white men. He had 56% of the vote for white women. He had 62% of the vote for white men. He had 87% of, uh, Obama had 87% for black men and 96% for black women. The gender gap that you see was not due to all women. It was due to African American, Hispanic, and all other race women. White women, 60, uh, 56% voted for Mitt Romney. If you look at the same uh, breakdown for age, 60% of those 18 to 24 voted for Obama. Uh, 60% uh, 60 of those 25 to 29 voted for Obama. But if you break that number down by race as well, 18 to 29-year-old whites, 51% voted for Romney. Whites, 30 to 44, 59% voted for Romney. And these are clear majorities of those coalitions that we're, we're hearing about that supported Obama being broken down by race. We call that a spurious relationship. So what we actually saw was a large minority gap here and not necessarily a gender or an age gap, gap among young voters. And the last part is that um, we learned something about measurement of political party ID. Most, most people who study polls have been talking about how partisanship is not uh, a fixed group. It is an attitude when you collect the data in polls. And so Mitt Romney won independents. Uh, basically 50 percent of independents supported Mitt Romney. Yeah, 50 percent, 45 percent went to Obama. But when you look at moderates, liberals and conservatives, Obama won moderates 56 percent. So moderates and independents are not the same thing. Ideology and party identification are not necessarily the same thing. Uh, so when you see that kind of split, you know that those people who are classifying themselves as independents were likely old Republicans who no longer wanted to call themselves Republicans. Lindsay, I think that, that David's made some good points there. I mean, I think we we are seeing a lot more voters willing to cross party lines. I mean, I'm old enough that the first time I went to vote, I was told you check one box. Right. Uh, I think that what's interesting in this election, um, if we're talking about key constituency groups, is um, the the amount of young people that actually turned out. 
Um, and young people, uh, they're, they're, you know, we're still kind of developing these theories about millennials and who they are and what they're like, but we're beginning to see that they are more uh, group-minded and civic-minded, and I think that in some ways, um, in talking to my students at least, I see that they are identifying with parties more so than um, Generation X or previous generations who sort of uh, drifted away from party identification. So I think young voters are, um, of course, you know, turning out in greater numbers. Um, the estimates are 22 to 23 million young people w- went to the polls, which is much more than we expected. Um, and it actually increased their share of the uh, electorate to 19% of uh, the vote from 2008. It was 18%. So I think we really underestimated the um, number of young people that would turn out. And I think in a lot of ways they are identifying with parties more so than at least the generation prior to them. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that uh, the data was showing that the the people Sarah's age were starting to identify uh, with, with parties more. I mean, I thought it was um, people my age that were raised that way, that, that had the strong identification with one party or another. You know, I mean, I I'm belong to a certain party the way I belong to a certain church. It's the way I was raised. Well, most people get their party ID from their parents. And, and right. so... When, when people have more access to media now, they have more access to people who are in the parties. The people who are in the parties have actually become institutionalized within the American political system. So they come to identify with individuals, and those individuals are members of parties, so kind of a transitive property thing here. Uh, so people say, well, I am this. Even if they don't always agree with the positions of the party, they agree with the person that they consider to like more. And so they vote on the basis of the the symbol and not necessarily the merit or the facts and those kinds of things that are connected to the party. Most people who who call themselves Democrats don't know the entire Democratic Party platform. Most people who say they're Republicans don't know the entire Republican Party platform. And for that matter, even with conservatives and liberals, you have fiscal conservatives and social conservatives. You have fiscal liberals and social liberals. So there's there's much more dimensionality to party identification and ideology that the public just kind of doesn't know about, but they buy because that's what they see. That's what they think is the the uh, institution. We're talking with Professor David Wilson and Professor Lindsay Hoffman. Uh, both of them are members or fellows at the University Center for Political Communication, and we are discussing the results of the November 6, 2012 election. Now, Lindsay, I know one of your research areas is media effects, and maybe this just marks me as old school, but it just always ticks me off when I'm watching the election results and polls are still open, and you hear CBS say something like, if Obama wins Florida, the election's over. And meanwhile, the polls are still open. And then you also, we also saw this time that Virginia stopped reporting their results for about 90 minutes because there were still so many people waiting in line. I mean, does the media report during the actual election, does that affect voters who still haven't voted? Well, I mean, there are arguments that that affects people uh, on the West Coast um, who, uh, you know, may not have voted yet. But, I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, this, this is, we've been seeing this for you know, half a century. We've been seeing um, uh, people re- relying on news media to give them an update on what the public is saying. So, I mean, I think what's most fascinating about it to me is that um, people will complain. They, you know, I can't believe that uh, they're airing all these returns and they're saying they're calling these states and saying that basically nobody else matters. But at the same time, we each of us has sort of an innate desire to want to know. So, I mean, for example, 
you're still watching those returns, right? Yeah, I was. Even, even <laughs> if it frustrates you, I mean, there's there's an there's an innate desire to kind of want to know what the people around us are thinking, and I mean, it's, it's sort of an exciting competition. You know, throughout the whole campaign, these things are framed as games. They're they're horse race, and this is the the finish line, you know, and everybody wants to know what's going to happen. So, I mean, I think there there are some arguments that it could depress voter turnout in some regions, but um, but I, I think that for the most part, people actually crave this sort of coverage. Uh, I I admit you're right. I mean, it, it's it's I just the only thing that irks me is the is the calling of the whole election. I I think it's a fascinating enough horse race just watching the votes pile up. Well, one thing to remember, one thing that I would, I would just put in that, that, you know, it's true that the media presenting this stuff does have an effect on people, but it affects their attitudes. It doesn't affect their behavior. So they're still going to vote. They're still going to, you know, uh, do what they feel like they should be doing as their civic responsibility. They may not like the fact that, unless it's mostly West Coast folks, may not like the fact that they're, uh, they're in line waiting to vote and somebody's already trying to make an attempt to call the election. But they still feel like they have an important say. Most people know that the West Coast usually puts the candidate over a certain level because uh, California has so many electoral college votes and the like. So, sure, I mean, the media the media has an effect while they're trying to, to do this. But Lindsay is exactly right. We, we crave it. We want to see it. If it's not elections, it's uh, uh, sporting events. If it's not sporting events, it's some kind of breaking news story. We have a desire, an innate desire, to just know and uh, that this is just the media, uh, just like any other uh, marketing group, playing upon that desire. This has really been a fascinating conversation. I think we've got time for maybe one more uh, major point. And, Lindsay, I'll start with you. One of the things I know my mother, for example, lives in Arizona, and she voted early. And, I mean, some states were seeing as many as 60 to 75 percent of the, the voters voting early um, because of the Hurricane Sandy, I think New Jersey, was allowing people to vote via email um, mm-hmm. in certain areas. How have those changes in how we cast our ballots affected the um, races? Um, well, I mean, I think they affect the, the targeting strategies. So, again, uh, the, the targeted messages that I was getting from the Obama campaign on Facebook, for example, uh, was reminding me last week and the week before about my friends in Ohio that could vote early. Um, so, I mean, they, and on the ground, those volunteers are out there reminding people that they can vote early. Um, and, so, I mean, we're, because these are state-by-state issues, uh, the, the volunteers and, and the get-out-the-vote efforts are, are targeted towards uh, what's happening in those particular states. So, um, I mean, I think it does, it does perhaps change the national strategy somewhat. But, again, I mean, we're not looking at, national campaigns anymore. We're looking at micro-targeted campaigns that are, are highly targeted towards not just states, but individuals within those states. So, I mean, yeah, it does affect the strategy, but I don't think it looks too different from us kind of at the national level, if that makes sense. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it's one more factor to build in when a campaign does its, if you will, micro-communication strategy. Right. I mean, this is why these campaigns are, are raising and spending record amounts of money, because there is just, you know, I mean, this is, this is a fun thing. I'm sure um, David can agree. We're both, we both love data, and we've been, I know I've been enjoying watching Nate Silver and all these other folks um, analyzing all these different uh, uh, data sources that are coming in. But it just means that you need that many more people 
to get the data, to analyze the data, to make sense of the data. So um, I just I think that you know one of the biggest takeaways from this is that uh, we're seeing a record amount of money being spent, being raised and spent um, because we have all these new tools to use. Well, David. Would you like the last word? Because Lord knows you brought in. Lindsay says she knows you loves data. You brought yeah. in like 35 pages worth of data. Well, I keep data with me. You know, you never know when you got to break out a random fact or something, right? So uh, the couple of points, right? Um, <clears throat> Lindsay's right about you know the micro targeting, and, and the effect is now that people have always asked the question, "Does my vote matter?" And now with micro targeting, you feel like it actually does. People are actually calling me and letting me know I need to vote. They're actually sending me emails. I'm actually getting posts on my Facebook page that I need to vote. This is the essence of making sure that I vote and that it counts. And most people are going to say now to this election that, yeah, my vote did count. Young voters, uh, minority voters are going to be the ones who say, yeah, it counted. It mattered. The other thing is that most of us thought this, this election was over before the first debate. Then we thought the election was over after the first debate. And I think that one thing that you have to do is you have to give President Obama credit for holding the line. People thought when he had the pressure on him in the second debate, he had to do it, and he did it. Thank you very much, David Wilson, and thank you very much, Lindsey Hoffman. Thank you. you. All right. Thanks for listening to Campus Voices, a collaboration between WVUD, the broadcast voice of the University of Delaware, and UD Information Technologies. The views expressed on this program are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official views or policies of WVUD, UD Information Technologies, or the University of Delaware. For more information about Campus Voices and to find archive copies of this and other episodes, visit our website. Using all lowercase letters, go to www.udel.edu slash campusvoices. We invite you to tune in every Thursday morning at 8.30 for Campus Voices on 91.3 FM, WVUD, and WVUD HD1, Newark, or online at WVUD.org.